Uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 14, and we're going to be doing the first section, which is verses 1 through 12. So the heading in the ESV uh, says, do not pass judgment on one another. So that section uh, of text. So I'm just going to start in verse 1. We're going to read it all, and I'll pray, and then we will get into uh, our study of the text. So Romans 14, starting in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes a day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. And since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord, and he gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the, li- of both the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that um, as we study this text together, as we open your word, that uh, you would be present here with us, not only um, uh, in spirit, but also in truth, Lord, that uh, this text would penetrate our hearts, penetrate our minds, and reshape how we think about you, how we think about one another, um, and how we treat our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Uh, God, I pray that all of these things would be true and that you would uh, guard my heart, uh, guard my mouth as I uh, preach your word, and Lord, that it would be all of you uh, and none of me uh, tonight, Lord. I pray all of these things in your name. Amen. All right. So uh, we have been in Romans for a while now. Uh, Romans 13, we talked about the authorities. Uh, Romans 13, on the back half, we talked about uh, how we should owe no one anything except to love one another. And then this text is going to come right off of the end of that, which is right after the command of Paul that he says uh, to walk, uh, let us walk properly as in the daytime, which is right up there in verse uh, 12 and 13. And then he says for us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And it would be foolish of us to assume that as humans, that all of us are going to take the command to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and try to live it out in the exact same way. So Paul, in his wisdom, is going to take this command to walk in the daytime And then he's going to understand with pastoral concern that not everyone is going to be convinced the same things uh, as it goes to how everyone ought to walk exactly in the daytime. Now, there are some explicit commands in the text, uh, which he lines up, and we talked about those last week. But this week, he's talking about uh, what happens when you're of an opinion or of a certain conviction of how you ought to walk in the daytime. Uh, And so we know that this doesn't play out for everyone the same, and that people have different levels of convictions. And so then what do we do when we disagree? 
And what if uh, I am convinced about one way to walk in the daytime, and I am convicted in my heart that that is the most honoring thing to do for God, and uh, someone else does not share that exact same conviction? What do I do uh, when I'm confronted with that type of scenario? So those are the issues that the text is dealing with. They're dealing over opinions and convictions, not over explicit commands of Scripture. And in the text here, we're going to see two on-the-ground issues for the church in Rome. Uh, one is the issue uh, of food uh, and what you should or should not eat. And the other issue is the issue of days and which ones you should or should not observe. Uh, these divisions are primarily concerned over the Mosaic Law. So these are commands given uh, in Leviticus uh, chapter 11. You get like a whole chapter that's just about what you can and cannot eat in terms of food. Uh, and then there's a lot of the ceremonial law, which is like the Feast of Booths, the Passover Feast, Pentecost, observing all of these days, the Sabbath really being chief among them. And so this is uh, primarily between Jews who observe the Mosaic Law, converted Christian Jews who observe this law out of respect and reverence for it, thinking it's the most honoring thing for God. And then Gentile Christians who do not observe the Mosaic Law because they never knew the Mosaic Law. And they came into the faith after Jesus. And so they never... I mean, it was nothing to them. They just eat food because it's there, right? Uh, and so we're going to talk about what are some reasons to break unity and what are some reasons not to break unity and fellowship in the church. And so kind of some big picture ideas that I want us to think of before we get into the text. There are good reasons to break unity and to break fellowship with other people. This text is talking about reasons that are not good reasons to break unity. So reasons you might break unity uh, with other people uh, is issues over doctrine. So if you believe one convicted thing about who God is, like say the Trinity, right? And someone else doesn't affirm the Trinity as the church has historically understood it, that might be a reason to break fellowship with that person because you don't affirm like a core truth of the faith. Uh, if you don't believe that Jesus is the person who resurrected from the dead and is now living on the right hand of, uh, is living and seated on the right hand of God, that's a reason to break unity with someone if they don't affirm the historical Jesus as taught in the Bible. They think that Jesus was a good moral leader, but nothing more. That's a reason to break unity with that person. Uh, if they don't affirm who God is, if they don't affirm the inerrancy of Scripture, for example, that they say Scripture has errors in it, that we can't trust it, it's not to be trusted, that's a reason to break unity because that's like a high-level issue. Um, but there are reasons not to break unity, which is what this text is talking about. So things like what music you should listen to in your free time or what music you might play in a church. Uh, whether you observe Sunday as the Sabbath day, whether you observe a Sabbath day at all, uh, what clothes are appropriate to wear, like how modestly should you dress, uh, what should you wear to church. Uh, we're probably showing our cards here because I'm wearing Birkenstocks and a jean jacket right now. So um, that's a reason not to break unity, right? Uh, and something like politics, for example. Uh, politics is not a good reason to break unity with other believers. Now, sometimes people take these tertiary issues, which are reasons that you don't break unity, and they try to import them into gospel issues. And when this happens, that is a very good reason to break unity. Because if you take an issue that's like way on the side and you try to make it a gospel issue, then you've effectively made it a gospel issue. And we as believers live and die on the truth of the gospel. Paul says, uh, we preach Christ and him crucified and nothing more. That is like the only thing that we should be known for. And so it's not, that's not what this text is referring to because this is, text is talking about two different groups of brothers within the church, so two different groups of believers. So it's not talking about people who are importing tertiary issues and making them primary issues, but I just want you to be aware of the fact that some of these tertiary issues, someone could make it a primary issue, in which case it then is a primary issue. So that's not what this text is talking about, but I want you to be aware that that is something that exists out in the world. 
and you could be uh, guarded against that potentially. Uh, so we're going to look at these issues uh, and this text specifically through really three points. And what I wanted to do is kind of point us to who God is in this text. So there's three things we know about who Jesus is in this text, and that's going to point us to how we would resolve these disputes. So the first thing we're going to learn is that Jesus is our redeemer. And we're going to see that in verses three through five, or one through three, and then in verse five. So Paul like takes this parenthetical step away, and then he steps back in. And Jesus, as our Redeemer, tells us certain ways in which we ought to have unity and certain ways in which we can have liberty to disagree because he's the Redeemer of not only the legalistic people but also those who are walking in his grace. We're going to learn how Jesus is our Lord. We're going to see that in verse 4 and also in verses 6 through 9, that as we live, we live to the Lord, that he is our Lord. And then we're going to see in verses 10 through 12, that section at the end there, that he is our judge. And so we see God is our redeemer, God is our Lord, and God is our judge in this passage of scripture. And that hopefully will give us a framework of how we learn about who God is, and that will show us how we ought to deal with one another and brothers in the faith uh, who are joined in unity together. And so we need to be reminded of who God is because that will remind us how we ought to treat one another. So we're first going to look at he, uh, Jesus being our redeemer. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. And then I'm going to skip down and we're going to look at verse 5 because it's kind of like a, a parallel text. And this is uh, two groups of believers in the church who are disputing over non-gospel issues. So this is not the gospel that they're arguing about. These are what we would call secondary or even tertiary issues. They're removed from the primary core issues uh, that you would break unity over. So in verse 1 he says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And that word opinions means that we are talking about something that's not gospel-related. This is not a doctrinal issue. This is an opinion issue. In verse 2, he continues, he says, One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. And if you skip down to verse 5, you get a, a parallel text where it says, One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So we get two parallel passages that are both talking about a weak group of believers and a strong group of believers. So you get the phrase right at the beginning there. It says, as for the one who is weak in faith. So this is not someone who's physically weak. This is someone who is weak or young or immature in the faith. The complementary person to that or the other person that they're talking about is someone who is mature in the faith, one that's referred to as strong in the faith. The weak person is marked by two things, namely that they eat only vegetables, so they feel convicted in their spirit that they should only eat vegetables, and we'll talk about why, and then also that they observe the Sabbath day and also probably other notable days uh, in the Mosaic law. And so uh, we get this passage in Leviticus uh, chapter 11 where he outlines all of the things that you can and cannot eat in terms of food. Uh, and a lot of times people ask the question, and I think we even talked about it a little bit this week, uh, what is the point of that law, the ceremonial law, if it was just going to be erased later when Jesus came? And one of the things that we get a picture painted of us in the Old Testament is that these rules were an object lesson to the people of Israel, that they had to constantly decide whether they were going to be set apart to live as God has commanded them to live, different than the people around them, or whether they were going to be like the people around them. And then in Leviticus uh, chapter 11, uh, verse 45, you get this really interesting statement, uh, which is also repeated in 1 Peter uh, 1, 15 and 16. And uh, it goes like this. It says, for I am the Lord. So all of these things you do for, 
I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. So the reason that they have to set themselves apart, the reason they have to live differently, is because they are the Lord's bought and redeemed by Christ. Uh, at this point in time, it's not been revealed yet, but uh, they are the Lord's, and so they should therefore be holy as God is holy, or they should therefore be set apart from the other people of the land uh, because God is different than the other gods of the land. So they should walk in the commands that he has given them. And so he gives them this object lesson. And so the people, the weaker brother, is actually convicted in their spirit that even after Jesus uh, has come and done away with these laws, that uh, they should still observe the eating and the, the rest, uh, the Sabbath day. And then the other group that you see is uh, the person who is considered uh, the one person who believes he may eat anything. So this is the strong believer. Uh, they eat anything, meaning they eat all kinds of meat. They're not worried about the kosher laws that we just talked about. Uh, and they do not most likely observe the Sabbath because in that culture, uh, they would have probably been working on Sunday because they had non-Christian bosses who would make them work on these days. So the early church would actually have met like Sunday night, most likely. Uh, because they were working during the daytime. Uh, so there's two groups of believers, and the reason that this law that we saw in Leviticus uh, chapter 11, the reason all those food laws are done away with, is because there's this passage in Acts chapter 10 where Peter is having a vision. Peter, who's like the leader of the early church, has this vision. He's actually like in a trance, and he sees this blanket descending down from heaven with all these unclean foods, or foods that he could not have eaten as an observing Jew. Uh, and he hears uh, a voice from heaven saying, take it and eat it, uh, eat this food. And he says, no, I won't. And it repeats two other times, so three times in total. And then Peter uh, is shown through this process that the Lord essentially says, do not call unclean the things I have made clean. So after the atoning work of Jesus, we see that these things are no longer binding on Christians. And Christians have these newfound liberties within Christ. And so the strong believers are marked by the fact that they walk in the full liberty that Christ has given them. Not overboard, but they walk within the full freedom that they've been given in Christ. Whereas the weaker brother, and this is what you see uh, in the text, they're actually narrower than what the, law that the, what the law allows. So they're narrower than the liberties that Christ has given them. And that's why they're considered weak, because they're so immature that they're actually smaller than what the liberties in Christ gives. So this is the weaker brother. And this text is interesting because I realized uh, in looking at a lot of the issues that are considered secondary, that I might qualify as the weaker brother on a few of them. And so that's kind of an interesting idea, right? But these are opinion issues. They're not doctrine issues, right? So the weaker brother is narrower than the law, but they're still a brother or they're still a sister, right? These are still uh, one in the same of the body. They're, they're still part of the family, right? The stronger brother walks in the full freedom that Christ has given them, but they're, they're still in the family. So we're not talking about Christians and non-Christians. We're talking about two groups of Christians who one is weak, one is strong. One is immature, one is mature. One walks not fully in their faith. They're weak in faith, and one walks fully uh, in their faith. But both of these groups are saved. Both are part of the family. We know this because they're referred to as brothers, and we know that their disputes are not gospel-centered. And so if you want a, a parallel text for how Paul feels about like non-gospel-centered issues, uh, there's a passage in Galatians we're going to look at in just a little bit that talks about how Paul feels when you violate the gospel. But here he talks about don't break, don't break community. In fact, he says, welcome the one who is weak in the faith, but not to quarrel over opinion. So he's very adamant that you don't judge or you don't dispute over these things. Uh, you have differences and it's okay. So then the question is, well, what is the gospel? If we're going to say we can have unity over non-gospel issues, but we can't have unity if it regards to the gospel, 
it's pretty important that we understand what the gospel is. So here's the gospel, like kind of clearly presented and the way that Paul teaches it in scripture. Uh, He says, first and foremost, that you and I are enemies of God, that we stand and we live our whole lives in rebellion to God, that no one seeks after God, no one is righteous, no, not one. We all hate God, we're rebellious in our hearts, that we are opposed to God. But while we are enemies and deserving of the punishment uh, that God is going to give us, we are just on a highway for destruction, right? That God sees us in that state and it says what? That God loved us so much that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He sends Jesus to live the life that you and I were not able to live, that we couldn't have lived. He does that for us on our behalf. He fulfills the covenant that we were being held to in a binding agreement. And then Jesus dies. And not only does he die to pay the punishment for our sins, but he also resurrects and is born uh, and is resurrected by Christ and seated now on the right hand. Uh, So not only does he die the death that we should have lived, but he also resurrects and now he uh, is living eternally in heaven. And so we, in the same way, we die in Christ and we are resurrected in Christ in that same way. And so this is the gospel that he is the payment on our behalf. And then he bought us with the blood that... uh, He bought us with his own blood as children of God. So this is the gospel clearly outlined, right? We're enemies. Jesus pays on our behalf. And now we walk in the family. That's the gospel. So anything that's not that, uh, that disagrees with that is a gospel issue. But these are non-gospel issues because this is not talking about two different groups. But it is important that you know what the gospel is because we're going to try to discern what are non-gospel issues in our context. And there are a lot of secondary issues that come to play in our context. So I, I came up with a list of six just in a, like a quick brainstorm, but there are a lot of issues that people can disagree with in our culture. The first one that I thought of is money. Money is a big secondary issue with believers. Specifically, how do you spend your money as a Christian? Uh, are you spending your money to advance the kingdom of God in every way, shape, or form? Uh, do you, uh, should we save? Should we invest? Should we save into retirement? Should we buy houses? Should we buy expensive houses? Uh, should we not do any of that stuff and just give all our money away as soon as it comes to us to different missions and different communities? How do we spend our money? I would say that that is a secondary issue, right? Because it has nothing to do with what we just talked about with the cross. It has to do with how are you going to walk out your salvation with fear and trembling in Christ, right? How, what do you feel you have liberty to do? What do you feel you're bound by? And so people can have differences in this. You know, there's people who I disagree with about how to use money, but that's okay because it's not a gospel issue. So it's okay to have disunity over these things as long as one doesn't despise and one doesn't judge the other. In fact, in this passage, the temptation for the one who walks fully in their liberty is to despise the one who isn't up to speed in the same way. And the temptation for the one who uh, is more tight with the law, who's narrower than the law, uh, the temptation for them is to actually judge the other person. So both of those are unacceptable things. We're called to unity into common agreement over these things. Not in perfect harmony, but to accept the differences and to respect one another. And we'll talk about why that is later on. The second one that I thought of was uh, the consumption of alcohol. Now, there's whole different denominations that have very different opinions about this. Uh, so it definitely qualifies as a secondary issue because you wouldn't say that based on how someone views this, that they stand or fall before Christ, right? So it's a secondary issue. Uh, The question is not uh, drunkenness or not drunkenness. The question is, do you drink in modesty, like you have a modest drinking community, or or do you have a dry community? Those are like the two kind of different answers to the question. We know drunkenness is a sin. We saw that in the passage earlier. Uh, It says, don't walk in orgies or drunkenness. So there's an explicit law about what not to do. But then the question is, what is right and what is wrong in our context? 
uh, a lot of us went to Iwu or Taylor, and so we know that they have a certain stance, they have a certain opinion on these issues. Uh, you also, if you've been in this community for any length of time, you probably know where the community as a whole stands on this issue, that uh, alcohol isn't seen as something that, we're not like a dry community, you know? Uh, and I realize that on this issue, I am the weaker brother because I abstain from the consumption of alcohol because I'm convinced in my spirit that this is something that I do for the Lord on his behalf uh, as a worship to him. But I'm narrower than the law on that. You know, I was out with Max last night. We went to a brewery and he had a few different, uh, what are they, IPAs or lagers or something like that. I don't know. I don't know anything about alcohol. <laughs> but I, on this issue, I'm the weaker brother because I have, I have bound myself narrower than the law actually allows. And that's just because I'm convinced in my spirit that that is the thing that I could do most worshipfully to the Lord. And Max walks fully in Christian liberty on that. So that makes me the weaker brother. Now, that doesn't mean that I, dis I judge Max for his consumption and he doesn't despise me for my lack of consumption, right? So we, we have common unity even though we have disagreement on this one issue, right? Uh, another issue that comes up all the time is the use of our time. You know, a lot of us are very busy. We're young. We, we don't sleep very much. We work really hard. Uh, how do we use our time? Do we use it most glorifying to God? Do we enjoy rest? Do we think we should use our time more so to enjoy the rest of God? Do we think we should just spend ourselves dry and uh, be dead tired and worn out all the time? How do you use your time? Uh, the law, and no, there's no explicit command in scripture about exactly how you should do it. So each one should be fully convinced in their own spirit about how to use it, as we see in verse five. We should be fully convinced in our own mind about how we ought to use our time most in a way that is most glorifying, most satisfying to the Lord. But that doesn't mean that everyone arrives to the exact same conclusion on that issue. You have liberty there. You have room for dispute and disagreement because we're all in the same family. The fourth one I was thinking of was media or music consumption. Now, I will say explicitly that some media consumption goes back to the verses we talked about in Romans chapter 13, where it says, don't walk in orgies or drunkenness or sensuality or sexual immorality. Uh, there's TV shows that are all kinds of crossing that line all over the place. And those are things that are not up for dispute. You don't put yourself around that. You don't put your family around that. You don't cause other people to be around those things. Uh, there's no plot line in the history of the world that was well enough written to justify those kinds of things on a TV show. That being said, uh, you have liberty regards to uh, other things that don't cross the explicit line that's been drawn. Uh, like what kind of music might you listen to, you know, whether it's indie music or country music or whatever. Uh, you have liberty over that. You have liberty over what kind of music you listen to in the church. You know, like we play our music off of a speaker. We don't have an organ or a cello or anything like that unless uh, Sam blesses us with his instruments. So, um, we, But there's, there's liberty for how you walk in music. But there's whole Christian denominations that have like almost made this a primary issue. Um, people who only sing the Psalms, for example, or who say that we shouldn't, we have to sing a new song of praise to the Lord. And this is not a reason to break unity this is just a matter of Christian liberty. Whether you walk narrower than the law permits or, or whether the, you walk narrower than the law actually is or whether you walk fully in that liberty. Another issue is tattoos. Uh, whether they're right or wrong. Whether they're right all the time, wrong all the time. Uh, what is like the line for that? You know, uh, My parents are of a certain persuasion. I'm of a different persuasion. Uh, that doesn't mean, like a tattoo is not a gospel issue. That being said, Jesus does come back with a thigh tattoo in Revelation. King of Kings, Lord of Lords, right on his thigh. So that's not written in Sharpie marker. So um, you can look that one up. <laughs> but uh, so this is, a, this is a matter of Christian liberty. This is a matter you can dispute over, you can't have differences on, but it doesn't mean you break unity over those things. Um, and then even something like clothes, like how modestly do you dress? How should you dress for church? You know, 
that's a matter of liberty that you can dispute over, but it doesn't mean you break fellowship over those things, okay? They're matters of opinion. They're not clear teachings in Scripture. Now, you use the conviction of your own spirit, how the Holy Spirit convicts you on these issues, to walk in a way that is most pleasing to God, but you don't break unity with other believers or judge them or condemn them or despise them if they disagree with you on these things. We only divide over one issue, and that is the gospel. That is the only issue worth dividing over, and nothing else that you do should have such a high opinion where you use all your social capital on that one issue, and then when it comes to the gospel, you have nothing left to spend. Be very, very generous with other people on non-gospel issues, because when it comes to the gospel, you better be ready to lay down that relationship, to lay down your life over that truth. Jesus says, if you would not deny uh, mother and brother for me, you are not worthy of me. So the gospel is that issue that you have to be very sure what you stand on and what you fall on. And to, to prove this, that this is what Paul says right here, but by the way, have unity over these secondary issues. Uh, there is a one teaching that he says specifically about why the gospel is something you cannot disagree about. So if you turn with me to Galatians chapter 1, Galatians chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 8 and 9. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul has a very clear statement on how you should deal with people who have a different gospel than you, who say something different about the gospel. Very strong wording. He says, But even if we, being all the apostles who have taught them, even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we have preached to you in the past, contrary to the one that's already been delivered, let him be accursed. And if he's, not, if he's misunderstood at that sentence, he goes on and he says, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one which you received, let him be accursed. And by the way, in this context, there are people who are preaching a gospel contrary to what Paul already delivered. So he is saying about those people, parenthetically, let them be accursed. So he, is, he thinks it's very worthwhile to break unity over a gospel issue. And so should we. But that means that there are all kinds of other issues which you don't spend social capital worrying about. You don't argue about things that are not worth arguing about. You don't waste your breath or your energy on those things. So the reason we can have common unity is because Jesus, he is our redeemer. And so if Jesus has accepted the weak and the strong brother, both in the family, who are you to despise the weak or the strong brother? Who are you to break unity over those things? For he has accepted them, right? It says uh, in verse 3, Let no one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. The reason we don't break unity is because God has already accepted this person as a, as a blood-bought member of the faith community. So that means you don't kick them out because you disagree with them on something that's not important. We don't divide over issues in which we share common ground on a very primary issue. We, we have one primary thing that binds us all together as Christians. And so we don't, break bread, we don't break community over other things that don't actually take that level of priority. And again, if you import other things into that level of priority, well, then you're preaching a different gospel. But again, that's not what this text is explicitly talking about. So that's the first thing, like why, why is it a good idea or why is it not a good idea to break unity? And then we're going to look in verse 4 and then verses 6 through 9 about uh, why, if we are not going to break fellowship over non-gospel issues, we have to all die to ourselves and live to the Lord. So when we have this disunity, what is the thing that binds us together? What makes both the weak and the strong brother justified in their stance? What is it that if you could have two different conclusions on a thing, what makes you both standing rightly before the Lord? So we're going to look at how he, Jesus, is our Lord in verse 4 and verses 6 through 9. So in verse 4, 
we see who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another. It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And then we're going to skip down to verse 6. In verse 6, when we're talking about the one who observes the day, it says, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord, and the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord, and he gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. So in verse 4, he says uh, that there is one person, and there's a different person, and they're both servants of another. So what you have here is a picture of two household slaves. You're both on the same playing field. You both have the same master. And so who are you to laterally pass judgment onto someone else? Because they already have a master. They don't need you on top of them telling them what to do. They have a master. They are the servant of another person. And you cannot serve two masters. So you shouldn't be try to be the master of somebody else. They shouldn't try to be the master of you. You are both serving someone higher than you. The strong brother serves his master, his curios, his Lord, uh, which we've looked at, I think, three weeks ago now. Uh, Jesus is our Lord. He's our curios. That is uh, translated master, sovereign, ruler, deity. Uh, the weaker brother also serves the Lord. And so even though they have disagreement, they both only answer to their master. They don't answer to each other on this issue. And then he says, whether he stands or whether he falls, and it is the Lord who's going to discern the heart of the person who is striving to please him. So he has to stand or fall only before the Lord. He doesn't stand or fall before the other brother. They don't stand or fall before each other. They stand or they fall before the Lord. And the encouraging part is he goes on to say, and he will be upheld. And I find that encouraging because the Lord and his redemption can be certain. We know that it can be certain whether you are a blood-bought relative of the family because we know that people are known by their fruits. And so he will be upheld is a, is a statement by Paul saying that even though he's a weak brother, even though he's not walking fully in his freedoms, he will be upheld. Even though he's a strong brother, even though you don't agree with him on this tertiary issue, he's a blood-bought brother, he will be upheld. So whether he stands or whether he falls, and by the way, he will stand, he will be upheld. He stands only and finally before his master. That's the only person he has to answer to. Which the scary thing is, if you are in either one of those camps, you have to be aware of the fact that you have to answer to only one person. You answer only to God. He is your master. Which means if you are a person who is a people pleaser and you answer to all kinds of other people, you better be concerned about the fact that your actual master is coming one day to check whether or not you are being faithful to them. There's only one person who you have to answer to, and you will have to answer to that person. And we're going to go down again to verse 6, and we're going to talk about the one who observes the day in honor of the Lord and the one who eats in honor of the Lord. So both of these people, both of these groups, whether you eat, whether you abstain, whether you observe the day, whether you don't, there's one commonality between both groups. Because they share Jesus as Lord, they seek to be pleasing to God. And so you get the language, they observe the day in honor of the Lord, or they eat, and they eat in honor of the Lord, or they abstain. And whether they abstain, they, they honor the Lord, and they give thanks to God. So there's one thing that's true about both groups, is that they've confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. And Romans 10, 9 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. So we know these are brothers in Christ. They're doing this in honor of the Lord. They're doing this of a heart disposition that they seek to be most pleasing to God in. And our lives must be lived to the Lord. The striking thing of this passage uh, in 6 and 7, and even if you go on into verse 8, for verse 8 says, For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. 
the thing that strikes uh, both groups as the common bond between them is they are both the Lord's. They both have the Lord. And they live unto the Lord. We are the Lord's. And if you are not the Lord's, if we are not the Lord's, we are not saved. God has to be Lord for you to be saved. In fact, the reason that there's a a disagreement allowed, the word for in verse 8 says that all these other things, we're going to explain what they mean. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Living and dying is the complete uh, spectrum of human existence, by the way, living and dying. So whatever you do, you do it to the Lord. For whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. The common bond is that they have a common master, and that common master is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will each have aspects of our lives in which we have to be convinced about our personal convictions. Paul doesn't say that uh, if you disagree with your brother, you should both come together and have like some mutual bond that you make about what is the, what is the thing that's okay, we're going to compromise on this issue. He says, let, the one, uh, let each of them be fully convinced in their own spirit. Well, why would he say that? If you have an opinion that you disagree with someone else on, usually the world will tell you, you both have to put up your opinions and both of you have to come to a common consensus in order for you to have fellowship. But Paul says, uh, you can each be convinced in your own spirit and be fully convinced and then live under that conviction because we live only and finally to the Lord. And we have to have convictions. You have to know if you have a question about whether you eat or whether you sleep or how you use your time or what work you do, You have to know that you answer to God for that thing. So be informed about what you do. Be informed about the job that you're going to take. Be informed about everything that you do and do it fully and finally to the Lord. It's not a matter of excuse where you can just permit yourself to do whatever because you're not going to investigate it. We have to be fully convinced about the things that we do and do it to the Lord. Everyone is given roles. Everyone is given responsibilities. Everyone's given opportunities, wealth, time, resources, and talents. And all of those things, we have to answer one day how we spent them to the Lord. In the time of John Calvin in Geneva, they were making the best watches in the world. The best watches in the world. Because all of these people were going to John Calvin's church, hearing and being convicted about that all of the work that they do is going to be answered to by the Lord. They were convinced that the Lord was going to check every single watch that they made and judge them according to how they made it. Because they were producing this craft for the glory of God. And so for a long time, the greatest watches in the world were coming out of Geneva. And so Christians should do good work, whether that's filing a tax return, whether that's sanding a wood floor, uh, whether that's creating a lesson plan, whether that's caring for a patient. Uh, You do all things for the Lord. And so whether your boss is going to approve, whether it's good enough to get you a paycheck, doesn't matter. You use your time, your talents, your responsibilities, and your gifts fully and finally, knowing that the Lord will one day call you into account on those things. We must give all things that we do, everything up to the Lord. Because whether we eat or whether we abstain, we do it in honor of the Lord. Is your work honoring to the Lord? Are the talents that you've been given, are you using them for the Lord? The wealth that you've been given is as much a blessing as it is a test. Are you doing it for the Lord? The motivation of both groups is the same. It is to be pleasing to their master. And the question is, is he your Lord? Is he the one you work for? When you're doing that job, when you're doing that homework assignment, whether you're uh, building a house or buying a house or spending your money, are you doing it for the Lord? Is he your Lord? That's the question. In verse 9, he goes on. He says, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. For it is to this end that Christ died, that he might be Lord. Christ died not to be Savior, but to be Lord. 
If he is not Lord, he is not Savior. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. This is this, this, an idea in theology called lordship salvation. So you can't say that I accepted Jesus into my heart when I was 18, uh, but when I was 25, I made him Lord of my life. When he became Lord, he became Savior. He died so that he could be Lord. And when he's Lord, he saves you because he stands in on your behalf. But if he's not Lord, he's not Savior. You don't get the nice parts without the hard parts. If he is not Savior, he is not Lord. He's either Lord or he's not. There's only two options. In Luke 9.23, we get a clear teaching from Jesus. Uh, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If anyone would come after Jesus... They have to literally put themselves to death. The cross is an instrument of crucif- uh, the, cru- the cross is an instrument of death. So you pick up your cross, you die to yourself, and you follow Jesus. You have to take up your cross daily to follow him, which means you die to yourself, you live to the Lord, and in all things, he is the Lord fully and finally of your life. So you have to examine how you live, and you have to see whether that's rightly aligned to scripture, whether that's rightly aligned to your personal conviction. You have to examine every single part of your life. Because all of the things that you do will one day be called into account. And we're going to look at this last part here in verses 10 through 12. And we're going to look at how Jesus is our judge. So we know he's our redeemer, which is why we have unity, even though we have disputes. We know that he's our, uh, he's our Lord, because that, that's who we have to live to. That's who we have to finally answer to. And we know also that he's our judge, which is I th- what I think is the most terrifying part. Because he's the one to whom we give account. So in verse 10, it says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? I'm just going to stop right there. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? That's Paul saying, don't pass judgment on your brother. Or you, very pointed statement, you, why do you despise your brother? Or in other words, don't despise your brother. It's obvious that you shouldn't be doing these things on the basis of the teaching he's just laid down. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For, which again is the transition word, for, the reason why we don't pass judgment or despise is because we will all one day stand in judgment before the Lord. All of us. So don't pass judgment on another because if you do, you're going to be judged for that. And don't do whatever you want because if you do, you're going to be judged for that. Uh, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Everyone must give an account to the Lord. And this doesn't mean that you, if you're a Christian and you've been blood-bought, you're just going to walk into the pearly gates and say, I got Jesus, and then just walk on through. You are saved by Jesus, his work fully and finally. But you must give an account for everything that you had access to in this life. Because there's a lot of teachings in scripture, and I know this is not something we often talk about in the church, but there's two passages in particular we're going to be looking at that deal with the teaching of what do you do with your work that you have become a Christian? What do you do with the talents, treasures, and resources you've been given? Because we will be judged on the basis of our works not saved, not redeemed, not justified on the basis of our works. That is fully and finally the work of Jesus Christ. But we will absolutely be judged on the basis of our works. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, We're going to look at the first passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You don't have to turn very far. We're pretty close to it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to start reading in verse 10, and we're going to go all the way down to verse 15. I just want to prepare you for this. This is not an easy teaching to read. So, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. This is Paul talking to the Corinthians about him being the person who actually converted them to Jesus. So he laid down the foundation, or in other words, Christ laid down the foundation. 
and someone else is building upon it, which is the teachings that they're receiving downstream from their other local uh, pastors. Someone else is building upon it. And let each one take care how he builds upon it, how he builds upon that foundation that's been laid. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's talking about justification. You can't lay down a different foundation other than the one that was laid, and that's only laid fully and finally by Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation, builds upon that justification with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test the sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer a loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. So what you see here is a very clear picture painted. The foundation is Jesus. He justifies sinners. That's the foundation that can't be undone. Even in the burning of fire, the foundation is still laid bare, right? That's Jesus. That's justification. Now, that being said, there's things that we build upon that foundation, which qualify as works. And so the teaching here that he talks about is gold, silver, precious stones. And then the other category is wood, hay, or straw. These are flammable and inflammable things. So we cannot remove or lose our salvation once it's been laid. The foundation has already been set down and laid, right? It's already there. You can't build upon it. You can't remove it. Uh, But you do build off of the foundation, and you build off of the foundation works that God has given you access to, time, resource, treasure, wealth. For all of us living in America, wealth is a big one that we've all been granted access to. And our works could be burned up, or they could be our reward in heaven one day. And so we have to all give an account to God for how we use the things that he gave us, our talents, our treasures, our time, all of those things, which is why we have to be fully convinced, which is why we have to live unto the Lord. And you have to do all of these things knowing that one day you will have to give an account to God for how you use the talents and gifts that he gave you, how you use those resources. And so the thing that I was thinking about was, uh, man, there's a lot of times that I think we look at only the big people in the church who have all these treasures and resources, and we think that they're going to get a fantastic reward in heaven one day, right? But there's going to be a lot of praying grandmothers who have way more crowns than any of us because they were faithful over exactly what they were given by God. There's going to be a lot of praying mothers who are in heaven with lots of crowns because they had an exact treasure, they had an exact time, they raised children faithfully in in Christ, and they will have reward for the talents and the access and the resources that they were given. And there's a lot of pastors who are leading churches in America who have become entertainers and they have squandered a lot of the gifts that they've been given. And people like that are going to get into heaven by their coattails on fire. They're going to be like a comet coming through the atmosphere, fully burned up, their whole life up in smoke. But they're going to still get into heaven because the foundation is still there. The question is, all the work of your life, is it going to get burned up when Christ puts it through the fire? Or is it going to be rewarded to you on the other end of that? That's the question. Are you building something permanently or are you building something that's going to get burned up one day? So, We have to all give an account to God for how we use our time and treasures. And uh, a parallel passage is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So turn there with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And just in case uh, you weren't certain that Paul is a very consistent uh, writer, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to look at verse 10. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body whether good or evil. And so this passage is translated good or evil, but I want you to know that in the Greek, this reads good, being like those good works, gold, silver, precious stones. 
and evil not being morally wrong things, not being sinful things, but worthless things, things that could be burned up one day. We will each be judged on our good or our worthless works, whether good or evil, the wasting of our time, talent, and resources. And so then we're going to read that. uh, On the basis of that, we're going to read what uh, has been written in the Old Testament times in verse 11 of Romans 14. He says, For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. This quotation is out of the Old Testament, out of Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23. Uh, And this is to underscore the idea that this teaching is not new. This is something that was true way back when. It's true now. It's the consistent revelation of God about who he is to his people. And so the question that I was uh, probed by this week, and I want to ask you as well, um, how will you stand before God? How will you stand before the Lord when you give an account of your life to God and all the treasure and resources that he's given you access to? How will you stand? Will your whole life go up in smoke? Are you going to be that person who's on fire through the pearly gates? Or are you going to make it into heaven uh, with precious stones, gold, crowns, and rewards? And uh, as we see in Revelation that not only do we have these crowns, but we actually cast them back before Jesus because we recognize that all of the good works that we did we say, thank you, Jesus, by your grace. We cast them back before him. But we have to have crowns to throw back his way if we want to worship him, right? So you've got to go and work with all of the treasure, all of the talents, all of the time that God has given you so that one day you can be even more worshipful back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because not only are those things, those good works that we build upon, those are given to us as a grace gift, but we must also work those things out with fear and trembling of all the resources we've been given. So I want to close this in prayer and then we will get a chance to worship together. Uh, So if you would bow your heads with me. Lord God, I I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth in your word, Lord, for how convicting it is, Lord. I feel like sometimes I I read your text and I I feel like I'm held close to the fire, close to the truth. And that is so so perfect for me because it shapes me and it molds me to be different, to want to be more pleasing to you, to want to live my life fully and finally to you as my Lord. And so, Lord, I pray that not only would that be true uh, for me in my study this week, but, Lord, also that would be true of all of us, that we would examine our lives, our hearts, our time, our treasure, our resources, Lord, and we would ask ourselves the question, is this glorifying to God? Things that we should be convinced over about how we might disagree with one another, Lord, we should be fully convinced that we could live to you and we could give thanks to you and it could be pleasing to you. And I pray that that would be true of all of our lives, Lord. And I pray all of these things in your holy and precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen.